Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. Uh, we're a little bit, we're venturing a little bit out just side the strictly wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Uh, there was a. I don't mind touching on. I know this is primarily an MMA podcast, and so I deliberately try to focus what I'm talking about into those into that area. But when there's big stuff in boxing or wrestling. I don't mind talking about it here, and I hope you guys don't mind listening to it, because my interest in combat sports is goes beyond MMA. And there was one of those today, but we'll... Well, not today, but this last week. Pretty big one, actually. Uh, so we'll have a go at uh, the news when it comes time to that. I'm Robert Winfrey. I'm your host. On the agenda this particular episode, last night, UFC on ESPN Plus 35... Um, maybe a little bit better in practice than on in paper, but I think if you showed someone that card on paper, you'd probably about, you probably got about what you expect. Uh, next week, well, this coming Saturday, UFC on ESPN plus 36. Uh, this, <laughs> I'm not sure to what extent this is the UFC maybe deliberately trying to bury one or both of the main event competitors or how much of it is a function of the extremely uh, slipshod might not be the right word but the rapidity with which events are coming together at the moment given the state of the world but you'd think that finally getting Colby Covington and Tyron Woodley together for a fight would be a slightly bigger deal and we get slightly more uh, promotional effort than the standard one-week turning of the gears that the UFC is throwing out here. I mean, uh, I don't know. Again, Colby and Dana don't necessarily get along. The acrimony between the UFC brass and Tyron Woodley is fairly well established. So, this might be the UFC cutting off their nose to spite their face in that respect. So, And, of course, they also do have the ability to justify it, well, with Tyron being on a two-fight losing streak and Colby coming off of a loss, but, I don't know, just doesn't really, does not seem like, even just a year ago, if you'd said, hey, we're going to have Tyron Woodley versus Colby Covington, okay, and it's going to be, a, you know, free on ESPN+. Plus. And you're not going to have any promotional build to it, really. Uh, just an odd, uh, just some odd choices. But that's, uh, the top three fights on that card are all pretty solid. So we'll get a preview of the action there. And again, news, because I record this show Sunday evening. That's the general recording date. And it seems like inevitably... About 20 minutes after I st- after the show is in the can and I've and it's you know being uploaded and processed and scheduled to be released, something breaks. Uh, a couple of weeks ago it was Neil Ma- uh, Robbie Lawler replacing Jeff Neal against Neil Magny. This week, it was the potential return of Nick Diaz, for whatever that's worth. So. I, we'll be talking about that uh, a little bit at least, so yeah, that's the thing. Alright, 
But that's and then you know, again a few of the other major news points. Uh, there was a Bellator, a couple of Bellator events, as well as some announcements about their future. And then kind of the big boxing thing about uh, the biggest star in boxing, I think safe to say, Saul Canelo Alvarez, now suing both Golden Boy, his promoter Oscar De La Hoya's Golden Boy Promotions, and DAZN, the streaming service, uh, for how the year has gone. So, yeah, well. We can touch a little bit on that. I am not the I am not deeply informed about it, but it's a big deal. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump into everything here. Let's start with last night. UFC on ESPN plus thirty five. In your main event, uh, Michelle Waterson defeats Angela Hill via split decision. There was a forty eight forty seven for each woman, and then a forty nine forty six for Waterson. I can't. C forty nine forty six for Michelle Waterson, and to the shock of no one, this came from everyone's favorite cage side can of uh, tomato soup, Sal D'Amato. I don't know how you can give Waterson either of the first two rounds. I just don't. I don't think it's doable. Forty eight forty seven for either woman is a perfectly reasonable, perfectly acceptable scorecard. I was 48-47 Watterson, but the fifth round is the is the swing round. Hill gets one and two. Apart from Sal D'Amato, there's no controversy there. Watterson gets three and four. No controversy here either. So it comes down to five. And five was a very close round. I If I rewatch this fight at some point, I might feel that uh, Angela Hill won. Watching it live, I thought Watterson edged it out. But that's just, again, I don't, my issue is not that uh, either Angela Hill lost or Michelle Wat- Watterson won. It's it's really just that 49-46. That is a, that is an abysmal, I shouldn't say abysmal. It's pretty bad. Almost in a, that is very nearly an abysmal scorecard. It is, it is just a bad scorecard. I, and there was one of these in boxing last week, and I didn't really talk about it here because it wasn't a big fight, but uh, I would encourage, uh, if, you, if you're listening to this, I imagine you, you know, are interested in other, the likelihood of you listening to this show and this being your primary touchstone into the world of uh, combat of sports or martial arts is pretty low, so just as a brief shout out to a, a program I enjoy. If you're not watching the uh, the Morning Combat show on YouTube, uh, it's hosted by Luke Thomas and Brian Campbell. They touch, they do MMA, so UFC, Bellator. Uh, when PFL gets back up, they touch on that from time to time. They talk on, they talk boxing, and they they want they talked a little bit about this, and I'm glad they did because I don't need to repeat any of their talking points. I would encourage you to go watch the show; it's good. At least I enjoy it. Uh, but and the issue was not who won or lost because the right guy won, but there were some absolutely horrific scorecards turned in, and that needs to be called out at this point. And look, Sal D'Amato has a fairly significant track record at this point of questionable scorecards. So, uh, look, I, I don't think Angela Hill got screwed. She lost a close fight. Sucks. Happens. Happens to her a lot, and 
I think if we're going to talk about Angela Hill, look, there's a very observable problem with Angela Hill and her fighting game. I've been, I know it's observable because I've been talking about it for a while now, probably a couple of years. Angela Hill has a very questionable gas tank. She has a good first round, good most of the second, about half, uh, you know, somewhere between two-thirds and half of the second round. And then she tends to, uh, I mean, because she was on a pretty decent, because there's an argument she won the Gedalia fight. To a lot of people, I think that Gedalia fight, if you paid attention to it, attention to it got you to where I am on her, as her and her skills. Because she arguably got outworked by Claudia Gedalia in the third round of that fight. You know how many third rounds in her career Claudia Gedalia has won? Yeah, I mean, it's not none, but it's not a lot. The third round is not her friend. So if your gas tank is failing you like that, that's uh, that's not a good indicator. The fact that this got bumped to being the main event on short notice should have been another indicator. I'm, I'm not saying Angela Hill couldn't uh, get her cardio into a place to be okay for five rounds. On short notice, that's a big ask, and you saw it here. She had a good first two rounds. Then uh, spent most of the third grappling. That sucked all the life out of her for round four. Then she kind of operated in a couple of different spurts in round five. She came out, you know, first minute or so of the fifth and looked okay. And then the last uh, 60 seconds or so, she kind of just flurried for it. And uh, point being, not a great struggling with her gas tank. So if we look at Hill, uh, if we look at Angela Hill for a second, I mean, even her, you know, the Loma Luk Bunmi fight, she lost the third round on two of those judges' scorecards. I think I agreed with her losing that round. Uh, she had a couple of stoppages before that over people whose inclusion in the UFC is a little bit dubious. Uh, she beat Jody. She lost to Yan Shaunan, which, not terribly surprising. Shaunan is... Pretty good, but even then, Hill had a good first, right? I think I think it was the first round that she won because the the scores were all twenty nine twenty eight. Uh, she beat Jody Escabel. Okay, that one she might have been okay. Uh, that said, I mean Jody Escabel is. If there's a fighter she was gonna win all three rounds against, you know. Uh, okay, if we, I mean even the Courtney Casey fight. Which was a split, but uh, that broke pretty heavily against her. There was one judge who gave Casey all three rounds. I I can't remember enough about that fight to have an opinion on that. So uh, forgive me for that one. But that's kind of her mo at this point. She's just uh, the longer a fight goes, the more she struggles and. This has been observable and knowable for quite some time. Whatever other faults Watterson has in her game, she comes in shape. She can fight for five rounds. Her cardio is not really going to abandon her, necessarily. So, I mean, Angela Hill after was like, yeah, I, I'm... 
she's, you know, a little bit frustrated losing split decisions, and I don't blame her for being frustrated by that. There's an argument that she won the Gedalia fight. There's an argument she won this fight. Like, anyone that says 48-47 Hill, I, I'm not fighting you at all. But there does kind of come a point when you have to have a real moment of clarity about some of this stuff. I'm going to talk about this again in a couple of fights. Hill's cardio has somewhat consistently been an issue. Now, I'm not sure what specifically leads to this. I don't know if it's an error in preparation. I don't know if it's the way she fights, if she does stuff different in the cage than she does in sparring, and that maybe she can fight all day in the gym, but once she's amped up enough to be throwing full power like this, it it doesn't translate. I, I mean, her takedown defense against Watterson was good. Watterson has solid wrestling uh, and upper body work as well in the clinch, and Hill did a really good job of denying, I think, I think Watterson only had the one takedown. If she had any others, they were very brief. So it's, but you know, grappling exchanges are tiring, and you know, there's no shame in that. That they are, they're exhausting. Uh, no matter how big or how little you are, those suck the life out of you. But that third round, you know, is just not her friend. I mean, even you know, into the second, she can get outworked. So I don't know if it's a mental hang-up. I don't know if it's a physical hang-up. I I don't know. I don't have nearly enough information to talk about what causes it. I can tell you what I've observed about her habits as a fighter. And that is something that she needs to figure out if she wants to get out of these situations. So that's just kind of where things are as far as that goes. Uh, I don't think Watterson is going to be in the title picture coming off of this win, but it was a much-needed win for her off the back-to-back losses. The reality is neither of these women were especially close to a title shot, but uh, the UFC does seem to like Watterson. She plays by the promotional rules. She is a somewhat marketable name. The problem is she's competing at strawweight at the moment, and strawweight is a genuinely deep division. I mean, the UFC is currently working on, which does not mean anything other than that they're trying to make the fight, between uh, Weili Zhang and uh, Rose Namajunas. Uh, Namajunas already beat Watterson handily, uh, and Zhang... Uh, Look, Zhang's a stylistic nightmare for her. You know, she already lost to Ioana as well. Uh, I appreciate the ambition in her trying to become champion, and I don't. I'm sure the UFC will try to accommodate that if the right set of circumstances fall into place. But this win alone, nah, that's that's not going to get her into the title picture. There's there's way too many hurdles there, and again, strawweight's a legitimately good division. So there's that. Uh, this was your fight of the night, and I don't have a problem with that. This was a largely engaging affair. Uh, Michelle Watterson spent only the first couple of rounds missing most of her attacks. <laughs> By the time we got later, she found some of the distance for her sidekick, which I suppose you could take a uh, philosophical issue with her constant use of, but... Uh, 
I mean, there's a giant school of thought about the efficacy of sidekicks in general, and I'm, I'm not going to hash it, go into that debate here, but she found the range on it. She actually landed one of her axe kicks, which was like, I don't know if that's another sign of the apocalypse, uh, but the way 2020 is going, it wouldn't shock me all that much if Michelle Waterson actually landing that is, you know, breaking one of the seals to release the four horsemen or whatever your particular derivate, your religious derivation about the end of the world is. <laughs> um, it was a, again, it was a pretty good fight, so I, I wasn't complaining all that much about it. Uh, your co-main event, Otman Isatar defeated Kama Worthy via TKO 133 of the first. I'm not ready to jump on the Isatar bandwagon. Uh, there's a couple of things that we know about the man at this point. One, he's kind of got bricks <laughs> in his gloves. He's got very fast hands. And those two things can carry you pretty far. Uh, I'm not again. I'm not willing to point at fighters at this point and go, that that guy, that girl, whatever, until I've seen them have to deal with someone putting it on them. You know, if you haven't seen someone overcome adversity or persevere in a really close dogfight, you know, there's just you just don't know a lot about them. I mean, that's still the big question around Francis and Ganu, right? Probably the hardest puncher in the UFC. Uh, maybe ever. Like, I think it's him and Anthony Johnson. Like, those two guys. Just absurd power. But we haven't seen him have to answer the questions that Stipe posed in their first fight. And until we've seen him be able to overcome or persevere through bad spots like that, that's still a giant unknown. And, you know, maybe he's one of those unbelievably special fighters that we never... You know, we see that once. We see that the one time, and then it never comes up again because he becomes so good that it just never comes up again. But, I mean, when when did we finally realize just, you know, how genuinely great John Jones was? It wasn't just his run-up to the belt or even his title win. It was... You know, when he overcame, I mean, the Gustafson fight, right? When he overcame, when he got into that war, came out on the other side of it, That's that was, you know, the cherry on top, given how great what he'd already done was. I mean, John's maybe a bit of an odd case there. But, uh, you know, uh, take another one. Uh, Demetrius Johnson, right? He got those out of the way early. His title winning effort against Joseph Benavides and then the John Dodson fight. He had to overcome, man. Those were tough fights. And that's... That's kind of when you when you know, because that's not a thing you ever know until you have evidence of it. So, is Isatar the next big thing? I don't know. He might be, but he's kind of just steamrolled guys at the moment. And you, know, you, you eventually, you fight long enough, especially at the UFC level, you become the bug rather than the windshield at some point. And how you deal with that is everything. Uh, next up, Roxanne Modafferi defeated Andrea Levy, unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. I kind of thought Lee won. Uh, the big issue is the third round. Uh, the giving of it to Roxanne is based primarily on a takedown that she had, and if she'd done anything with it, I might have favored her, but, I don't know, that, that's just me. Uh, Lee's a little bit like Hill in the sense that I think if you watch Andrea Lee fight, it's very obvious there's ability. But she's got to have some kind of... 
a moment of clarity, some epiphany, some you know, come to Jesus moment about why she keeps finding herself in these spots where she's dropping these decisions. And until she does, this is kind of the spot, the space she's going to occupy. So, really know what to say else about that. Um, okay, our giant clown fiesta of the evening. Ed Herman defeats Mike Rodriguez via Kimura, 241 of the third. Um, here's the problem with this. In this, Ed Herman was doing okay in the first round, not great. Uh, Herman's very over the hill. I mean, the man's almost 40, and he debuted in the UFC coming off of... He was on the third season of The Ultimate Fighter, right? So he debuted for the UFC in 2006... So the man's had, like, a 14-plus-year career in the UFC. I mean, of course he's over the hill at this point. Anyone would be, given... I mean, he's 39. He's going to be 40 uh, less than a month. I mean, yeah, the dude's over the hill. And he's kind of just getting roughed up by Rodriguez as this fight goes on. We get into the second, and Rodriguez... Hits him with a couple of body knees to the body from the clinch. Herman drops. And as Rodriguez is kind of looking to punch him, the referee steps in and says, Time. You hit him in the groin. Now, the replay clearly showed what happened. They, there was no groin shot. These were perfectly legal blows. Now, I'm not going to... So, I mean, just think about what happens here for a minute. Herman is then given up to five minutes to recover, because that's the policy for groin strikes. He takes a lot of that. Comes back, and still kind of... Uh, uh, Rodriguez goes back to attacking him. Survives the round. Little bit barely, but he survives. Third round, uh, Rodriguez back to punishing the body. Herman winds up getting dropped again, kind of pulling guard, locks up a Kimura, sweeps him, steps over the head, gets the tap. It is a it is a great finishing sequence. And I'm not going to blame Ed Herman at all for this. Uh, if the refer if you get hit if the referee calls a foul in your favor, you know this goes for all sports, right? I mean, how many times you know is a guy in the NBA gonna go? No, I'm the one who touched, who last touched the ball. How many wide receivers when there's you know a, a, a catch along the sideline that they okay we're we're not sure. How many wide receivers are gonna go up to the official and go? No, I was out of bounds. Like that's that's the job of the official is to adjudicate these things. For Herman, he played the hand he was dealt. And in this particular case, that dealt him a reset after getting stopped, essentially. Uh, five minutes to recover from basically being stopped, and then uh, he was able to kind of pull through that. So I'm not... Uh, I don't blame him, you know? He can only go with what's in front of him. The referee, in this case this would be uh, Chris Tonioni. He botched this hard. I mean, Herman wasn't even claiming that he got hit in the groin, right? 
Like, we've seen that before where a fighter gets hit borderline, you know, and, and they kind of go, oh, my groin. That you, uh, Simpsons reference I could make there. They do the old George C. Scott in his Oscar-nominated role of football in the groin. Uh, and then the referee, okay, you got hit. Uh, no, like, the, Herman wasn't even selling it like that. Or, you know, Josh Koscheck. Ah, he need me in the head while I was down. And then the replay shows he missed by, like, two and a half inches. It's, it's, it's on the ref. That's all it is. This is entirely on the ref, and the ref screwed up. He botched this one badly. Uh, Dana White was very critical after the fact. I think, I think he said that was some Mazzagatti level refereeing. And for those of us that lived through the Steve Mazzagatti era, uh, that's a pretty harsh burn. Uh, the UFC, the UFC, I think they said they were going to pay Rodriguez his win bonus, uh, which is, which is the right thing to do. Uh, it really sucks for Rodriguez because this should not have been a win for Ed Herman. I know, I know the commission is not going to have the integrity to look at this and go, no, the ref botched it. We're changing it to a no contest. They're not going to. Because most of them don't. It is so unbelievably rare for that to be the case. Uh, in fact, I think the only one I can think of where an outcome was changed just based solely on the referee screwing it up was... Uh, like the, Was it Leonardo Santos and uh, somebody else? Something like that. And uh, I think it was uh, Dober. Uh, where there was, referee thought he was out, he was unconscious in a guillotine, and he was not even close to unconscious in a guillotine, and the ref, and the ref waved it off, and the, and this was in Brazil, so this would have been the CAB MMA, who said, yeah, no, uh, no, you can have your no contest, that's what should happen here, this was horribly handled by the ref, horribly. Also, there was, uh, we got, we did get some clarification on the rule set that Nevada uses. Because they, they've they been saying, the top of the broadcast and everything, that the referees can have instant replay at any point. This is not the case. They can still only use it for a fight-ending sequence. And those are two very different things. I'm really unsure how we don't have a second official look you can have another uh, you can have a second official who's even if you wanted to go who their their primary function is to look at video replay of called fouls and determine the validity and they can tell the they're the only ones who can do this they can go tell the in cage official Yes, foul was good, or no foul was bad. If no foul was bad, and we're dealing with you know a situation like this where the fight was going to be over, you you maybe just, maybe just wave it off at that point and go, no, you were done, or you know you immediately restart the action. But putting all of this on a singular point, I'm not I am not defending the call in the sense that I think it's justifiable, because from what I saw, was not. But you're asking a single person in real time, with no technological aid, 
to call these things correctly. And putting anyone in that situation, you're going to get points of failure like this. And this was a, look, bad one. Not saying Tonyoni didn't screw this up. He royally screwed this one up. But I think even if he realized that as Herman was trying to recover, at that point, what do you do? There's no system in place to address that. It, it sucks. That just is a pretty miserable way to go about this. So, glad Rodriguez got paid what he should have been paid. Uh, I, I think the fight, I think the result of this should be overturned. I just do. I think it was just such a glaring officiating error that this should be changed to a no contest. Uh, at lightweight, Bobby Green defeated Alon Patrick. Uh, Bobby Green's career resurgence. Been a nice story for, you know, last 10, 12 months or so. I mean, the man's on a three-fight winning streak. He's 3-0 in 2020. He's beaten Clay Guido, Lando Venata, and now Alon Patrick. Uh, he's kind of turned his career around from a guy who had some really... He was in a really rough stretch not that long ago, so... You know, he wrestled well, got Patrick down, uh, worked him over from there when he needed to. Patrick looked rusty. I mean, the man been out for like two years, so I don't blame him, but... You know, good on Bobby... Bobby Green's, again, his career resurgence. One of the better feel-good stories of 2020. He's, he's had a pretty good year. Especially for a guy a lot of us had kind of... Maybe not completely written off, but you know, we thought the book was written, you know? Uh, credit to him. Uh, and kicking off the main card, Billy Quarantillo defeated Kyle Nelson via knockout punch in seven seconds of the third round. Uh, Nelson had a good first round, and then Quarantillo just kind of persevered, wore him down. Uh, this was a good fight. And the finishing sequence is just a textbook one-two. Right hand splits the guard. Nelson uh, face plants. All she wrote. Uh, Quarantillo now, I think, 3-0 in the UFC. Uh, again, someone we still kind of need to see some more out of, but looks to be a decent prospect. Okay, then as for the prelims, Sejara Eubanks defeated Julia uh, Avila via unanimous decision, 29-27 across the board. Uh, Avila just really struggled once this hit the ground, and, I mean, Eubanks is a very, very credible jiu-jitsu practitioner, so it's not surprising that she was better there. I think how much better she... The skill... Diff, the gap in skill. Not the fact that there was a gap, but how big it was. It was kind of a surprising thing. And Avila... I mean, again, look, Eubanks is never really going to be, you know, that person. She still has cardio issues. I mean, she was she was pretty well tired in the third round and was fortunate that she was able to get uh, the takedown that she did because just purely on the feet, she was really labored. Uh, our biggest upset of the evening, and there were a lot of upsets. Uh, Modafferi was, was an underdog. Ed Herman was an underdog. Eubanks was an underdog. Uh, Kevin Kroom defeated Roosevelt Roberts via guillotine choke. This was the standing, like, power guillotine or ninja choke. 31 seconds of the first round. Uh, Kroom took this fight on short notice. Kroom has a very unimpressive record. I think he's like he was like 21 and 12. 
He's been fighting professionally for about 13 years. Uh, you can find there were some videos of him that got shared around in the wake of this. Uh, Rebecca Hitman found one of him getting knocked out via slam by Justin Gagey. Uh, the man's been around for a long time. He's never been anywhere near the big leagues. And that's not just the UFC. Like, I don't think he's ever made it to Bellator or the PFL even. So this is a guy who's been just kind of, you know, plying his trade for a long time uh, and comes in here, lands a counter left uh, to the... Because he was orthodox. Roberts was southpaw. Lands a left hook to counter a 1-2. Was Roberts southpaw? No, Roberts wasn't. It was just a really nice left hook then, a lead left, so it would have been his lead hand. Uh, then as drops him as Roberts is getting up, wraps up the ninja choke, uh, drives him to the fence, is able to get proper leverage. Uh, you know, it was only 31 seconds. You know what can you say about it? It was, I believe that uh, didn't I see that this was the fastest uh, successful debut in lightweight history, something like that. Like no one else debuting at lightweight had won faster. I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, good for him. Um, Alexander Romanov defeated Roki Martinez uh, via an arm triangle choke for 22 of the second. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say about this. Romanov kind of threw Martinez around a little bit. Uh, his ground and pound is very much regional MMA heavyweight ground and pound. It looks like, ah, oh, I'm going you know, Donkey Kong, Hammer Fist, Roar. But anybody on the bottom who's even, like, kind of knows what they're doing is like, okay, block, 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 shift, block, shift, and you're not really doing any damage with it. I mean, as the fight wore on, he got a little bit better about... He's got some odd choices about positions and what submissions he tries to go for. I mean, he tried... He had a really nice... uh from the back wasn't a full German, but it wasn't just a straight, like, forward mat return. It was a really nice throw. And then tried to transition to the uh, the scarf hold chest compressor choke. Uh, when he didn't really have it. It uh, wasn't even especially close to having the proper position. But, you know, heavyweight MMA, heavyweight grappling being what it is. Uh, he's I mean, he's finished people with that before because, again, heavyweights. So, there's that. Um, as the fight wore on, he just kind of kept getting top position. I mean, eventually he found the arm triangle choke and got it done. But, you know, low-level heavyweights. Uh, I'm not ready to say much more beyond that. Uh, Jalen Turner defeated Brock Weaver via rear naked choke. 420 of the second. I uh, Turner was just better everywhere. Uh, hitting him long. He he uh, dropped Weaver with kind of the old... This was a favorite technique of Mike Tyson. A Turner fight was fighting southpaw, I think, so it's a little bit different. But, you know, the right uppercut to right hook. Uh, he hit him with that, dropped him. Tried to do the walk-off thing. The ref wasn't buying it, so instead he said, yeah, make him stand up. Dropped him again, got his back. Uh... Yeah, Turner again, just kind of better everywhere. Brian Barberina defeated Anthony Ivey via unanimous decision. 230-27s, 129-28. Uh, yeah, Barberina just, you know, 
typical Barbarina fight. And kicking everything off, Sabina Mazo defeated Justine Kish via Runic and Choke 357 of the third. Uh, Kish had a good first and a decent second. I gave Mazo, or I think I, I had it one apiece going into the third. A lot of people had Kish up 2-0. Then in the third, Mazo keeps hitting head kicks. She lands a straight right, then fakes the straight right, throws the right head kick, drops Kish, gets her back. Pretty good side-to-side attacks. She gets the back and then feeds the right arm like she's choking, feeds the left arm like she's choking, gets the right arm through, under the neck, done. Uh, you know, people are easier to submit after they've suffered, you know, blunt force trauma to the head. <laughs> I, I say that with you know, non-facetiously, it's... If you have the ability to bludgeon someone to open up a submission, you absolutely should. So, Mazo keeps kind of... She'd been a little... Isn't she a little up and down in the UFC? Yeah, she dropped her debut, but yeah, three in a row now. So, I, I don't know what's next for her. She's at, This was at women's flyweight, so... Very open division. Uh, not a lot. Not a lot yeah, going on there. <laughs> As far as that goes, so that was yeah, that was it. That was UFC on ESPN plus thirty five. My thanks to everyone who read live uh, or after the fact. I know th- this card flew under a lot of radars, and I don't blame anyone for forgetting it happened. But yeah, it's that's what. So thank you. You can find my full report in the MMA Zone of four one one Mania per usual. All right, let's have a look. This coming Saturday, let's do this before we talk all about some other stuff. UFC on ESPN plus 36. Ah, oh, jeez. Okay, our main event, Colby Covington, Tyron Woodley. It's really unfortunate they never, they didn't get to make this you know, earlier. Jeez, uh, this is a when I say this is a big card, there's a lot of fights here. There's like... they get 13? Jeez, hang on. Before I talk about this fight, I actually... Because there's a... Uh, we lost a fight from this. Um, we were going to get uh, Miguel Baeza and Mickey Gall. Gall pulled out. So there's no word on if that's been removed, but... Five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, there's 13 fights on this card a big card. That feels like, I don't know, maybe, I I don't know if the difference between 12 and 13 is that big. I mean, I know it represents somewhere between like 30 and 40 minutes of broadcast time. Uh, But it just feels like a lot. Anyway, main event, Covington and Woodley. Shame we couldn't get this when, you know, Woodley was champion, but I I just think there would have been more interest built in. Um, both men coming off of losses. Covington coming off of that failed bid to win the uh, title from Kamaru Usman. Uh, Woodley on a two-fight losing streak, having dropped you know fights to Usman and Gilbert Burns. Um, I think when. This was. There was a period of time that I think this was a much more compelling matchup than it is now. Maybe the right way to say that. 
I mean, think about this for Tyron Woodley. He's, what, 38? Yeah, he's 38. He's been fighting since 2009. Uh, the majority of that has been... Okay, everything, all but two of his fights, his first two fights, everything else has been in either Strike Force or the UFC. And some of those are some of those have been really tough fights. So he's, you know, 38, almost 40. And his last two fights have been pretty they've been kind of rough if you're, you know, Tyron. He hasn't just lost his last two fights. He's lost every round of his last two fights. If you're losing 10 rounds in a row, and not especially close. I mean, I, I don't think there's a valid argument for him winning any of those. Not just fights, but rounds. What round did he potentially beat Gilbert Burns in? None. What round did he potentially beat Kamaru Usman in? None. It's, uh, yeah, it's he's slowing down. And I think this is kind of... This is kind of his last stand in that respect. You know, if if he drops three in a row, and especially if he drops it in similar fashion, I, I'm not saying the man should retire, but if you look at, you know, what are some of the indicators of a shot fighter? Uh, lack of willingness to pull the trigger is certainly up there. And that's been an issue for Woodley lately. You know, earlier in his career, even, you know, into his title reign and whatnot, he was very, he was more selective about pulling the trigger, but he would pull the trigger. You know, did he ever pull the trigger against Kamaru Usman? I mean, I know he threw a few punches, but I mean, you know, did he ever... Now, some of that was Usman's style, and I'm perfectly willing to concede that. It's not an easy thing to fight Kamaru Usman. But same thing against Burns. I mean, you know, the first round of the Darren Till fight. Uh, you know, big chunks of the Damian Maya fight, he wasn't throwing all that much. Again, some of that's him trying to hold off Damian Maya, but at some point you've got to start firing, right? <laughs> It's it's a bit it's a little bit troubling. I mean, the man obviously has power, but power's not any good if you don't actually throw a punch. By contrast, we have Colby, who's 32, so kind of at his prime, at the peak of his athletic and physical abilities, who had a really good run up to a title fight, and he's the. He he has easily given Kamaru Usman the toughest fight of his career thus far. Right? Look at all the other Usman fights. Uh, Colby gave him the toughest fight. Whatever you want to attribute that to, he did it. Uh, given Woodley's propensity for putting himself on the fence, for trying really hard to find the right counter, and 
his ability to just kind of be outworked and overwhelmed, especially by a guy like Colby who has just endless cardio. I mean, even after losing that fight with Usman, you know, Colby jogged out of that cage. That the man is in absurd condition. Absolutely absurd. I I just I don't have much of a reason to pick Tyron Woodley here. And it's not it's just a bad matchup for him. Uh again, does that mean that doesn't mean he cannot win. Certainly not impossible. Uh, likely, I tend to think the odds favor I tend to I tend to like Colby's chances. Uh your co main event is guaranteed insanity and violence. Donald Cerrone against Nico Price. What does Cerrone do last? Man fights all the time. Okay, Cerrone's on a four-fight losing streak. Uh, stopped by Tony Ferguson. Stopped by Justin Gagey. Stopped by Conor McGregor. Uh, lost the decision to Anthony Pettis. A lot of people kind of thought that should have gone his way. Uh... He's back up at welterweight for this, though. I mean, and Price is a big guy. I mean, he's coming off of a loss to uh, Vicente Luque, but Luque is Luque's top Luque's top tier. Hmm. I kind of like Price at this point. I I I have serious questions about Cerrone's durability at this point. I mean, Pettis, his fight with Pettis, you know, is either he or Anthony Pettis all that that big of a, you know, do they deal a lot of damage in, you know, 2019, 2020? They're not, you know, big. They don't put out a lot of damage. So, against someone like Price, who will, I, I don't know. I don't know how his durability holds up. I mean, Cerrone's been fighting, you know, a lot of fights forever. That catches up to you at some point. It catches up to everybody. So, going to lean towards Price there. Uh, our other featured fight, the uh, the new kid on the block in the UFC, uh, Hamzat Shemaev against Gerald Mershart. This is a step up for Shemaev, uh, who made some his. I think he has the fastest turnaround in UFC history for wins because he had both of those fights when they were in Abu Dhabi earlier this year and just beat the brakes off of his opponents. Uh, I do favor him here mostly because of how I think he matches up with Mershart. But Mershart is a durable, kind of rugged veteran, so that's not a... This is a the kind of step up that you look at and you think... It's appropriate for a guy like this because Mershard is going to test him, but he's not an unreasonable ask. Uh, the UFC is also kind of looking at booking Shemaev against Damian Maya uh, in Abu Dhabi a little bit later, after, uh, which is ambitious. Uh, I know there's some people who are saying it was disrespectful to Mershard to book the guy that he's fighting in another fight later. I. Uh, you know, look, if Mershart beats him or, you know, hurts him, even in victory, if he gets hurt, then he won't make the other fight. That's just kind of how that goes. Uh, you know, I, I'm i okay favoring Shemaev here, 
Shmaev against uh, Damian Maya is a slightly different proposition. I have to I have to see more of Shmaev before I can make a comment before I can make an assessment there. But that's a pretty good fight. Certainly, it's certainly a compelling fight, kind of in the abstract, if nothing else. Like you want to see what Shmaev can do against someone like Mershart. Uh, let's see. Then we have Johnny Walker and Ryan Span. Remember when people were high on Johnny Walker? Then he got finished by Corey Anderson, lost a fight to Nikita Krylov, and uh, now he's kind of dropped off the face of the earth. Yeah. Um, and Ryan Span. Span's on a pretty good winning streak, actually. He's won four in a row in the UFC. Um. I tend to favor Spanny Walker. While has, well, he has moments of spectacular ability. I'm, I'm not sure how consistent. And I don't think he's consistent enough. Then again, Span is not exactly you know a top of the food chain guy. Uh, there's a strawweight fight between Mackenzie Dern and Random Marcos. That could be very awkward. It could be a very awkward fight. <laughs> Um, hmm. I mean, both women are good grapplers. Dern, obviously, the in the jiu-jitsu world, at least, superior. But neither woman has great takedowns, and their striking is just not good. I'm going to lean towards Dern, but... That might be an ugly fight. And then kicking off the main card, we have Kevin Holland and Darren Stewart. Um, Holland on a two-fight winning streak. Stewart, he's coming off a loss, isn't he? No, he beat Maki Patolo. Okay. Huh. Stewart's so inconsistent, though. That guy's all over the place. I'm going to lean towards Holland, but... Eh. Again, who knows there. Alright, on to the prelims. Mursad Bektic and Luis Garagori. I'm going to lean Bektic, but... Uh, that man... Uh, that loss to uh, Darren Elkins, he's never recovered from that. His career trajectory never got back on track. Um... We have Maria Buena Silva and Mara Romero Barella. Probably lean towards Silva there, but women's flyweight again, lower end of things. Uh, flyweight fight between Jordan Espinova and David Dvorak. So technically, we have two top 15 flyweights because the UFC only has 15 of them under contract. Um, I liked Dvorak in his debut. Espinosa's had a couple of fights in the UFC. He looked pretty good in them, as I recall. Yeah, he looked okay in a few of those, but he wound up losing. I'm gonna go with Dvorak there. Uh, women's bantamweight fight: Jessica Rose Clark and Sarah Alpar. Is Alpar a replacement? I don't think so. I'll go with Clark. Yeah, I'll go with Clark. Uh, Journey Newsom and Randy Costa at bantamweight. Probably go with Newsom there. 
Andre Ewell and Irwin Rivera. That's a pretty solid fight, actually. Uh, Ewell's been a little bit up and down in the UFC, but I'll lean towards him there. But Rivera had a solid showing for himself in his debut because he took that fight with uh, Giga Chikadze up at bantamweight, up at featherweight on short notice. And then kicking everything off, Derek Minner and TJ Laramie. These guys both making their debuts. I think Minner's fought in the UFC before. And at this point, if he did, I saw it. Um, also, apparently getting uh, Tyson Nam and Jerome Rivera on this. That's not listed on... I, don't know, I think that got moved. But we'll see. You can't rely on any... Most of my sources conflict when it comes to stuff that's just announced, stuff that got moved around, because the UFC is just a constant stream of moving pieces at the moment. Yeah, Minner lost his UFC debut to Grant Dawson. I thought his name was familiar. Whereas Laramie... is making his debut. Okay. I'll go with Laramie then. Eh, why not? That's, that's kind of a flip a coin for me. I don't know enough about either man. But that will take place this coming Saturday. So, and, you know, Covington and Woodley tend to draw a bit of interest. So if you're curious to follow along, please stop by, say hello in the MMA Zone 411 Mania. I always appreciate you guys showing up and talking, if nothing else than to stop me from dying of boredom between fights. Which has happened once or twice. I have had to self-resuscitate. Alright, uh, okay. So let's talk for a little bit about the other kind of news. Well, sort of. Uh, okay. So Bellator had a couple of events. They had one on the 12th and one on the... I see one on the 11th, one on the 12th. So Friday and Saturday. Um, yeah, what do you say about this? The Phil Davis and Leota Machida fight was predictably just a rehash of their first one. That no one, I mean, no one really cared about their first fight when that was in the UFC, and this one just yeah, just no one really cared. Um, I'm trying to find. Okay, this is listed. Oddly. Okay, sorry. So, you had that. Um, yeah, it wasn't a good fight. The only thing of note that came out of the... I think the only thing of note that came out of the... Event, first of all, we had two events... We had two fights that were rendered uh, no contest due to groin strikes. One of those was one of the most horrific groin strikes you'll ever see. Uh, in this case, it was Raymond Daniels and Peter Stanonic. I'm probably mis look. I can't watch Bellator with the sound on. I just can't. the co The commentary team for Bellator, which I believe for these events, their usual trio at this point, is Mike Goldberg, John McCarthy, and Josh Thompson. It is awful. I mean, I, I've everything I. 
I've made my case about Mike Goldberg being terrible before. John McCarthy is... <sighs> I understand the idea behind having him there, but... He's got this kind of, like, personality when it comes to... And some of this I know is kind of baked into him at this point because... But when he's doing commentary, he tends to use his ref voice. Which is to say, I am the official. No one can have a dissenting opinion from me or another opinion from mine. And when you're the ref, you have to present yourself that way. You have to. You are the voice of authority. When you're a commentator, it's annoying. I don't know how he made me somewhat sympathetic to Mike Goldberg, of all people, who is just a robot. He is a soundboard with catchphrases plugged into it. But I feel bad for the guy on occasion because I think John McCarthy kind of bullies him a little bit. Uh, so, point being, I got to the point where I could not watch Bellator with the sound on. There, that commentary group renders the entire product unwatchable. Completely and utterly unwatchable. So, so I didn't initially hear the, uh, the reaction from poor Mr. Synodic, but... So I, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly was the point there. But there was one accidental groin kick earlier in the first round, I think. Which sucks, but happens. The one in the second, and the one that led to the fight being waved off. Um, Stanonic is... So, just kind of set this up. Um, Daniels is fighting Southpaw. He normally does. Stanonic is orthodox, and he throws a jumping right roundhouse, so his rear leg. He kind of jumps. He's not like full-on, you know, karate-style jumping. But he's he hops off his feet and is throwing this roundhouse kick. Daniels, who despite, you know, being over 40, there's a, there's a period of time when Raymond Daniels was the best karate fighter in the world. And had karate been part of the Olympics, he would have, I think, pretty easily won... Uh, medaled, if not, you know, taken gold a couple of times. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal kickboxer and karate fighter. Daniels is able to read this and decides to counter with a spinning back kick. It's a overly flashy counter to this particular technique, but if you can pull it off, you do you. I'm not... This is not me saying he shouldn't have done it. But because of the way Stanonic jumps, Daniels' foot goes straight into his groin. Now, if you watched Raymond Daniels' last fight, you saw him knock a man who's somewhat off balance, but still he did it, knock him most of the way across a cage with a spinning back kick. It is an absurdly powerful technique. Your body weight is moving with it. And then you have all the musculature of your leg going. It's And this kick, there is no ambiguity, doesn't glance, doesn't deflect, square into the groin. Um, Stenotic immediately is, he is in agony. That poor man. Uh, this is the worst groin kick I've ever seen. This is the worst groin strike I've ever seen. And it took a long time for something to get worse than, uh, the knee blow that Alistair Overeem landed on Mirko Krokop in Dream back in the day. I hate even saying that that was back in the day. Just makes me feel old. <laughs> but... Because at the time that happened, we were still referencing stuff about both Krokop and Overeem back in the day in Pride, so... We're at least two days back, for whatever unit of measurement you want to give that. 
this was this was absolutely horrific. Um, and that was the only real, I think, the only really notable thing to come out of this. Um, you had Ed Ruth getting submitted via inside heel hook. Uh, Ruth is one of the best collegiate wrestlers ever. I mean, we're not talking we're not talking Kale Sanderson or Dan Gable. You know, those are that's it. Those are the two. But he's certainly one of the finest amateur wrestlers the collegiate system has produced. I think if you were to if you're in the know about collegiate wrestling, he's probably somewhere top 15-ish. And he's a really really good wrestler, but MMA is difficult. And that's just kind of the point there. But other than that, not a whole lot there. But that did lead into what I want to say about the other one. Um, suppose I can briefly talk about the uh, in the main event of this was 246. Uh, Juan Archuleta claimed the vacant bantamweight title. Not a bad fight. Uh, Neiman Gracie submitted John Fitch with a heel hook. Fitch then retired, uh, which was probably overdue. I mean, Fitch is 42. He debuted professionally in 2002. So, again, 18 years. The majority of that in either the UFC or, you know, World Series of Fighting or uh, Bellator. I mean, his final record is 32-8-2 and uh, one no contest. That's a good record. He fought a lot of tough guys, and he beat the majority of them. But, and so he retired. Uh, the big thing that I think came out of that event was we knew Bellator was leaving the Paramount Network. We got some more official stuff about this. Uh, starting October 1st, they will be on the CBS Sports Network. Uh, they're apparently going to be primarily broadcast on Thursdays, which is an odd choice. Uh, that's the same day that the PFL airs, and the PFL has the entire ESPN distribution system behind them. So, a little bit of an odd choice as far as that goes. My phone goes off. So, yeah, that's... Uh, an interesting decision. We'll have to see how that plays out. Uh... Somebody pointed this out, because uh, that's going to be starting October 1st. The UFC, uh, not the UFC, Bellator doesn't have another event until October 1st. Until, yeah, so this was the last Bellator event on Paramount, which used to be Spike TV, which used to be home to the UFC. They The UFC, on uh, they started there in, I think, 05, with uh, the, ultimate fi- the first season of The Ultimate Fighter was on Spike. I mean, Bellator was on Spike or the Paramount Network as they rebranded, but Bellator was on that channel longer than the UFC was, actually, I think. But that's the end of, like, 15 years. Because if it was 05, then yeah, that's the end of, like, 15 years that MMA has been a prominent feature, has been on that network. Eh, jeez. I'm old. I'm so old. I remember deliberately not watching The Ultimate Fighter Season 1 because I hate reality television. (laughs) Stuff that makes you feel old, man. You're always surprised by it. So, we'll be keeping an eye out for that. Alright, 
Yeah, I suppose I can be brief about this because my thoughts are fairly succinct. So I mentioned this at the top of the show. The A little bit after I wrapped up recording last week, uh, news broke that Nick Diaz is talking about a potential return to the Octagon. Um, I know there are people out there that care about this. I'm not one of them. And I can explain why I'm not... I mean, first of all, a bunch of the people... Look, I'm not knocking anyone for being potentially excited about a Nick Diaz return and not caring about a Brock Lesnar return. I don't care about either of them fighting in the UFC again. But that's just me. I am not the casual audience. But the number of people saying, no, I don't want Brock back. He's too old. He's been out for too long. Both of which are true. Uh, Are just, like, over the moon about Nick Diaz coming back. I'm... Ignoring the fact that those exact same criticisms are true of Diaz. To anyone out there who might be like, well, what do you, how can you not be excited for Nick Diaz's return? Here's a question for you guys. And I don't want you to look it up. Can you tell me the last time Nick Diaz won a fight? I mean, this is all seriousness. What's the last, when was the last time he won a fight? Because I know. And for those of you who are potentially going, uh, yeah, if you don't know, uh, I mean, I'm happy to tell you, when he beat BJ Penn in 2011, the man has not won a fight in, when was that in 11, in October? That was, a, that was October of 11. So we're talking, over nine years, Last time that man won a fight. I mean, there have been two... Because he wouldn't be coming back this year. He would be coming back in 21. He will have sat out for two presidential election cycles in terms of getting a win. Think about that. And you're ex- and you're like, yeah, I can't wait. Come on! That's the last time he won a fight. He hasn't fought at all since 2015. The man, the man last fought when Obama was president. I mean, look, I understand the appeal the man has. I understand the personality. I understand what... But if you're, if you're wondering why I don't care, anybody who hasn't won a fight in almost a decade... Gonna go out on a limb and say, I don't care all that much about their return. And look, here's the other thing about this, okay? Beats BJ Penn, fights Carlos Condit uh, for the interim belt, loses. That fight's not. Com- I'm gonna piss off all the Diaz marks. That's not a competitive fight. Carlos Condit won that fight pretty clearly. Despite the loss. Fights George St. Pierre about a year later. That's not a competitive fight. George beats him. Fights Anderson Silva. Uh, you know, about two years after that. One of the weirdest fights you'll ever see. It's a weird fight. Loses. And I don't think there's a real argument that he won. Again, there's a bunch of idiots that make the argument that he should have won the Condit fight because Condit was backing up. 
Condit fought him while backing up. He didn't run. But, you know, small people who lack the ability to understand the nuance of fighting think if you're going forward, you're winning. Uh-uh. Look, Diaz's game has not evolved in a really... MMA does not look the same now that it did in 2015, even, when he last fought. Look at the, Take a look at, just, if you've been a fan long enough, think back to what MMA looked like in 2011. Think about what the techniques looked like. Think about what the strategy was, what the metagame was. And Diaz had some struggles in fights back then. I mean, again, he, I'm not saying he should have lost the pen fight. He won that fight. You know, Paul Daly gave him some problems. He ultimately won. I think Son, I think uh, Evangelista Santos gave him some problems. I mean, look, he benefited tremendously from matchmaking in Strike Force. But his game was a little bit outdated nine years ago. I'm sorry, are we going to expect him to be completely up to date on everything? So look, anybody that is excited about him coming back, fine. I'm not here to I'm not here to say how dare you. You like what you like. I'm whatever. Whatever gets you through the day, cool. I am not saying this is not an indicator of you as a person or anything else. But if you're going to ask why I don't care, I ask you to take your blinders off. Take off your fan goggles. Take a look at this objectively. He's been out for a long time. He's how old is he? He's got to be about 40. He's 37. He's 37! And the man has not fought since he... He never fought in his 30s, apparently. Just think about that for a second. Because, I mean, he debuted in 2001. I mean, his UFC debut, he was barely 20. Well, not his debut, but when he fought Lawler. Like 20, 21, something like that. Very, very early. Very, very, very young. But if he last fought in, you know, if he last fought in 15, so he would have been barely 30. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm just, I don't care. If they want to bring him back and have him, you know, do a specialty attraction bout with... Dan Hardy made some noise about him wanting to come back. I'm sure. Throw those guys on as a fun experience for the fans that care. Knock yourselves out. I mean, that's kind of the goal, right? You're fighting. Uh, Darren Till said he wanted that fight. I. Darren Till has better things to do than fight Nick Diaz. Um... Again, I know there's people that care... I don't. And at this point, I half expect that whole thing not to come together anyway, because that's what—that's just kind of the history of Nick Diaz in the UFC. Look, biggest thing about Nick, I'm if he if he is in a healthier place, physically, mentally, and emotionally than he used to be, I'm happy for the guy. I don't I don't hold any kind of grudge against him. I mean, that interview he did with Helwani, you know, a couple of years ago at this point. A year ago. I don't remember. I mean, when he was just... Uh, when he sounded just that awful. Uh, 
Look, if he's in a healthier place, I'm glad for him. Genuinely. You know, I I hope he is. But am I excited about the prospect of a Nick Diaz return in 2021? No. I'm not. I'm, I'm just not. Uh, yeah. Okay, sadder news in stuff that might have been awesome. Um, the UFC announced that they are moving on from the potential fight between uh, Dustin Poirier and Tony Ferguson. They were going to try and make that, I think, for 245. Um, ugh. I'm so disappointed by this. I want that fight. You want that fight. I, can, I don't know you. I know you're listening. I don't need to know anything other than you choose. You are deep enough into the MMA fandom to choose to listen to this podcast, which is not giant, as part of your interest in the sport. That is enough to tell me you want to see Dustin Poirier and Tony Ferguson fight. Everybody wants that fight. Dustin Poirier came out, I think, a little bit earlier this week and said, yeah, want that fight, but I'm a prize fighter and the prize has to be worth it. Now, I think that's fair. Here's the thing. Uh, Poirier, I think, made, what, 400000 for the fight? Because he had the hooker fight. So he might have made more for the Khabib fight because it was a title fight. I don't know the... I don't know the specifics of his contract, and some guys get more in a title fight than they do in a non-title fight. Let's see if we have, we have the release. Okay, no, Poirier made three hundred. So Poirier's contract right now is one hundred and fifty to show, one hundred and fifty to win. Now, don't get me wrong. That's you know, that's a lot of money. Three hundred thousand dollars is not chump change. But. Poirier should be... Look, I've said this before. Not only, All fighters are underpaid. Just This is, I think, empirically and mathematically true. In the case of Poirier, I think we could even... If we set aside that reality, there's a very real argument that the man is significantly underpaid. Dustin Poirier is one of the top five lightweights in the world. He is one of the most fan-friendly fighters in terms of both his personality and his fighting style that you will ever find. Can you name me a boring Dustin Poirier fight? I'm I'm genuinely curious about this. I'm going to look at his record. Hang on. So he came into the UFC and he beat Max Holloway. Had a sloppy but very entertaining fight with Chan Sung Jung. Submits Jonathan Brookins, loses to Cub Swanson, so maybe that one. I'd have to. I haven't seen that that fight in so long. The Coke fight was watchable. The Brando fight was. That was. Yeah, look. In his entire UFC run, I can't think of a bad fight the man has had. And if you look at his recent string, his fight, his most recent fight, Dan Hooker, fight of the night, fight of the year candidate, great fight, title fight with Khabib. Okay, not action-packed, but a good fight by any reasonable measure. Before that, Max Holloway. Boy, they had a great fight, didn't they? 
that would have been fight of the night if that if that hadn't had to follow Israel Adesanya and Kelvin Gastelum's war. So you come in second to what was, I thought, the fight of the year for 2019. Before that is fights with Eddie Alvarez and Justin Gagey. Those are wars. This man is a blood and guts, entertaining fighter who also happens to be at the top of the best division in the sport. You think about anybody else that occupies that same spot in any other sport. Think about a boxer, right? Uh, I, I don't know who would be an appropriate analog to this, so my apologies. But someone who is top, call it three. I don't know what Poirier's official ranking is, uh, but one of the top three or five in his division, who has fought for the title, is a former interim champion, has a very appealing style. I Look at a boxer in that same spot, I guarantee you they're making millions of dollars. Millions. If Dustin Poirier's stance here is, yeah, you want me to fight Tony Ferguson, that's a great fight. We all want to see it. He wants to take it but I think you're going to have to pay me more than $150,000. I'm sorry. I don't think that's unreasonable at all. And the UFC, being the UFC, said, no, nah, we'll just move on. I am... Uh, the UFC will screw the fighters and the fan base at every opportunity just to keep the machinery turning over. I mean, really, that's kind of what we're at here. They're not paying... Those two guys, I mean, look, Poirier is the one who made noise about it. But, I mean, I imagine that Tony's not terribly thrilled with his current financial arrangement or, or would take more. And we're getting screwed out of a fight that, that can't miss. Throw those two maniacs together in the cage. That's a can't miss fight. And I don't mean that it can't, I don't only mean that it can't possibly be bad. You gotta see that fight. Both those guys have been successful in visible spots for a long enough time. Like, who could... Everyone wants to see that fight. But, nope. UFC. Too cheap. It is a profoundly frustrating thing to be a fan of this sport at times. I imagine you all know that as well, if not better than I do. So, yeah, we'll see what comes next for both guys. They're trying to keep Tony on 245, I think. They want him... I think they want him there to... Put, which makes even less sense why they wouldn't do him in Poirier, but I think they want him there to potentially win and set up a shot at the champion coming out of that fight. I mean, if somebody else beats him, then they would be the person to get that spot, presumably, which... Not a, I mean, beating Tony Ferguson is an incredibly difficult thing. Only two people have done it in the UFC. And one of them is now fighting for the title. So you want... They're trying to have a number one contenders fight on that card to set up the next title fight for the winner of Justin and uh, Khabib. Which is fine. That's fairly smart matchmaking. Get those two guys on the... Get your, two, get your next title fight potentially already set up. Guys on the same track in terms of schedule when they fought, when they can train, etc. Uh, but 
anybody other than Tony, anybody other than, not Tony, Dustin. I mean, I'm not saying that that's the only compelling fight out there for Tony, but I don't know. It's just a shame because I think the winner of that fight would unequivocally be the next contender, right? I mean, I know I know Dustin versus Khabib would be a tougher rematch to sell, but I mean, he's beat he's fought both of those guys already. He beat Gagey and he lost to Khabib. You can sell the rematch in both of those cases. But I don't know. Again, that's just me and it makes me sad. All right, uh, last thing I want to touch on here very briefly. Again, we're going to hop over to the world of boxing for a second. Um, biggest star in boxing, Saul uh, Canelo Alvarez, is suing his promoter, Golden Boy, uh, which is Oscar De La Hoya's group, and the DAZN streaming service because he has not fought in... Has he not fought in 2020? Has he seriously been on the shelf all year? want to say he fought once. No, the Kovalev fight was November of 19. Yeah, he's been up for the entire year. Um, kind of the ju- the crux of this issue is his contract with DAZN I think is worth about $30 million a fight. Uh, there's just a few guarantees that are in there. Uh, some of which has to do with the uh, marquee nature of his opponent. So he... he they don't want to pay the man $30 million to crush a can and no one cares. Right? That's that, that's kind of the, the thrust of their point. Now, there's some very specific legal language that is important that you know, I am not completely aware of. But that is the thrust of their argument. His argument seems to be, you haven't given me a fight in 2020. You've breached my contract in doing so. Because he, he might have had a minimum number of fights per year kind of thing. And he's now suing them for the bulk for the remainder of his contract, which I think is $280 million. Uh, I don't know how this is going to go. There's... Again, there's some specific legal language that's very important. Uh, I know he's been offered fights, and I know he's some of them he's turned down, which in so, is in some respects his prerogative. There's not a gun to his head saying you must fight so-and-so because we demand it. He has a degree of autonomy here when it comes to what he's uh, going to do which he should have. He should not be forced to fight at the promoter's whim. So, again, there's going to be a big question about is one side or the other being unreasonable? Which side, if if both sides, you know, where does the legal responsibility lie? It's We're going to be paying attention to this, but not a good look. Not a good look. I mean, um, DAZN was... How do I say this? I wouldn't say what they attempted to do was ill-advised, but they, I think, made some key assumptions about being able to attack the pay-per-view market with an over-the-top streaming service and just didn't really have the financials to eat losses while they established themselves and established their 
properties because you're going to take losses on that. If you're going to pay someone like Alvarez to not fight on pay-per-view, you have to compensate that man for that. But to be clear, that's cor- again, that's correct. If that man draws, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars when he fights on pay-per-view, and he does, and you're saying, here, come fight for us, you'll never, you won't fight on pay-per-view, so you won't get any cut of that particular revenue stream, his response should correctly be, well, you're darn sure going to pay me some other way. But if that's what you're going to be doing, you just have to kind of accept that you're going to be operating at a loss for a period of time while you establish the value of your property. And they never really, I don't know if they just didn't have the financials in place to kind of go along with that, or if people are just still happy paying you know, picking and choosing on pay-per-view instead of paying uh, a monthly subscription to that service when most of the time you don't have anything they want. So, I don't know, but we're going to have to see how that plays out, see, again, there's a lot of details that are going to come out depending on how the lawsuit goes forward. It is certainly something we'll be paying attention to. This might also be an indicator of why De La Hoya said I'm coming out of retirement because, you know... <laughs> Without Canelo, I'm not sure he's got a tremendous amount of high-profile in terms of market value talent. He's got a lot of good fighters under his banner, but you know, De La Hoya can try and leverage his name value for an event. And if he's having odds, if he's at odds with Canelo, uh, Golden Boy Promotions might be in need of some, you know, cash infusions in that respect, I suppose. Anyway, so we'll be kind of keeping an eye on that going forward. It's Something to pay attention to, although, you know, friction like this between fighters and, and their promoters in the world of boxing is hardly uncommon, so. Alrighty, let us have a quick look through Twitter, see if anything crazy is broken. I mean, I'm entirely sure it's not going to break until 20 minutes from now, because that's just how this goes. Uh, doesn't look like it. Yeah, alright. So, let's go ahead and get into plugs. What do I have this week? I have a slight... Well, last week, there was a double shot of Damn You Hollywood. Uh, myself, Mark Radulich, Alexis Haina, and David Wright got together to talk about Disney's live-action adaptation of Mulan. Um, it's such a nothing movie. And, of course, it ends with the Disney continuing to give thanks to a murderous regime. The, the Chinese government is a murderous regime. <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah, we talked about that movie, such as it was. On Tuesday, Mark and I got, just Mark and I got together to talk about Christopher Nolan's uh, newest film, Tenet which I enjoyed quite a bit. So you can find our full reviews of those two movies, for those of you who are interested in those things. Uh, There was a schedule change, to the shock of no one. Uh, This coming week on a TV party, myself, Mark Radlich, and and Pat Mullen, I believe that's the three of us, Uh, the three, I need a name for us, the three of us get together because <laughs> uh, we'll be talking about a I forget what network it was on even 
there was this is from a few years ago. It's uh, one of those like uh, Sons of Anarchy, uh, loot like Breaking Bad kind of family drama set against a gritty backdrop shows. Not quite as illegal. Not dealing with anything necessarily as illicitly illegal as those two movies, but it's set against the backdrop of uh, an MMA gym and some of the associated fighters and the family and so on and so forth. I think Pat just stumbled upon it on Netflix and said, hey, you should check this out. So we watched it. We kind of said, yeah, sure, we'll get together and talk about it. Um, So if you want to hear us talk about the acting chops of Frank Grillo and Nick Jonas, not a joke, actually. Both those men do some solid work in in that show. You can tune in for that. Um, yeah, the schedule just got hit a little bit. Wonder Woman got pushed back. Candyman got pushed back. Um, uh, the King's Man got pushed back. I'm happy about that. I don't want to see the movie. So, I think that's the big thing for this upcoming week. We'll wind up being just the Kingdom review, so tune in for that. And then next week we'll be back here. Next week will be a big one, everybody. We'll be reviewing this event, UFC on ESPN Plus 35. And we will be previewing UFC 253, the double title event. Uh, Israel Adesanya versus Paulo Costa, and then Dominic Reyes and Jan Blahovic. Um, Those are two really good fights. Uh, The rest of the card, eh. That is not a deep card. Uh... Yeah, it's, it's just not. It's just not a deep card. But, I mean, Adesanya and Costa will be great. Reyes and Blahovic. I'm interested to see what 205... I shouldn't say interested, because I kind of crapped all over the division last week. Eh, you know what? No. Even if it's not of the highest quality, I can be interested in what that division does. Now that John Jones is gone. So, am I, you know, excited? Nah. But I don't have to be excited to be curious and interested about something. So take that for whatever it's worth. We'll have a preview of those next week. I will have to watch some film on both Costa and Adesanya. But in both cases, that'll be enjoyable for me. I like watching both of those men fight for very, very different reasons. But that's it. We'll be back next week with those and, of course, whatever crazy news happens. Whatever story I miss by about 20 minutes, uh, we'll talk about it next week. Until then, thank you all very much. I deeply appreciate your support. Please like, comment, subscribe, give us a rating if that's what you do instead of like. Tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell a stranger. I don't care. Just tell people. <laughs> Share the show around. Always appreciate you guys. Uh, Stay safe out there, and please continue to be well, be safe, and behave.